And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the Internet now. Oh, sure. Next, you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply. This is the Athletic Baseball Show on the Athletic Podcast Network. Welcome to the Athletic Baseball Show presented by Tops. It is Friday, May 6th. Derek Van Riper here with Keith Law. On this episode, we are going to dig into a story that, you know, Saris wrote for the Athletic that suggests that swinging the bat might be bad for hitters, which is probably not great for fans of baseball. So we'll talk about some possible implications of that. We'll have some overreaction theater as well. It's kind of a, a new Friday thing that we're doing here, Keith. Overreaction theater. It can be teams. It can be players. It can be anything, really. And then I want to talk to you about Joe Adele before we go today because he was optioned down by the Angels uh, when rosters were pared down earlier this week. And kind of seems like his future with the Angels might be limited, might be the kind of guy that ends up getting traded as they try and bolster this roster and, and make a run this season. But I do want to start with the swing piece. And I think it's there's a lot in there to unpack. For the story, Eno got to talk to Theo Epstein about possible big changes that could be coming in the game. And it doesn't sound like it's anything like changing the mound or anything like that that baseball is going to employ to manipulate the offensive environment. Those changes are, for now, seemingly limited more to pitch clocks and possibly banning the shift and messing around with the baseball, the, the, the things that we've seen on the table for a long time. One of the things he was getting at, though, is that younger players, non-professional players, might start changing their approach if a more deadened ball reduces the value of waiting for the optimal pitch to hit a home run. And I just thought that was kind of interesting because I wanted to get your take on how much you think amateur players mirror the approach of current big leaguers. Do you see the same sort of three true outcomes approach, the emphasis on the long ball at lower levels of baseball as someone who's scouted this game for a long time? I do not. In general, I do not. I, I, I hesitate because some of the things that we see in professional baseball have trickled down, such as the overemphasis on launch angle for young hitters and just trying to hit for power, which, yeah, sure, there's some accuracy to a belief that players will get drafted higher right if they show more power as amateurs however a lot of teams have realized hey we can optimize your swing but we can't do so easily is teach you balls from to tell balls from strikes or to teach you to recognize pitch types or to give you just the kind of pure hand or wrist speed that you need to be able to hit say a major league or even a double a quality fastball so you know, the idea that we're just going to optimize your launch angle as a 16-year-old and that's going to make you more money, it might. It's not going to make you a better hitter. And maybe you're just then you're the guy who gets paid, which is good, but you fizzle out in a ball because you can't actually hit. So, you know, some of that stuff has trickled down. And in terms of guys just 
say, not swinging, just being more patient or really passive. I, I've seen a few guys like that, but it's definitely not widespread. And I think a lot of that is it's high school and college coaches aren't preaching that. And especially at the high school level, unless you are facing an elite prospect, your opposing pitcher is probably going to put one right over the plate that you can swing at. You may not do anything with it, but odds are pretty good in each at bat. You'll get something good enough that you should probably swing at it. And that's obviously not always true at the upper levels where you may get you may get strikes, but they're going to be pitcher strikes if you're in high A, double A and on up in pitches that you shouldn't offer at. So for folks who haven't gone to see, say, college baseball, if you live near a college, a Division One college, go watch a couple of games. It's, an enter- it's entertaining, certainly, but it also gives you a sense that that's a long way from the big leagues. This isn't like college football where guys can get drafted out of – a good Division One program, maybe not even a good Division One program, maybe a mid-major or something, and go right to the NFL. We don't have that in baseball. You can take a guy even out of a Power Five conference in baseball, and he is not ready to go right to the big leagues because the quality of play, the caliber of competition is just so much different. Yeah, it seems like a lot of this comes back to the quality of pitching and not being able to get pitching that is going to have anything close to the quality of the stuff. Again, we're adjusting for age. We're not saying we're going to get 15-year-olds throwing 95 and having these, these filthy, filthy we, we breaking balls. We have those. There are, you know, when they get hurt, we don't want nobody asked for that. Relative to age, the quality of pitching is not where it would need to be to try and mimic this approach. You're going to get more hittable pitches at lower levels because of what you suggested. Kids are just mm-hmm. trying to get the ball over the plate for yes. a significant portion of youth baseball. So there's this tiny window, probably on what, the travel circuit maybe, where you get enough quality pitching where you could maybe try and employ something like a big league strategy, but it just doesn't seem like it's an apples-to-apples sort of comparison. So I just found that to be interesting because I don't, I didn't think just from a glance, like, ah, this doesn't seem like something that's going to actually change the way baseball's played at the lower levels because these other, these other variables are things that would take decades to change you have to change player development at the youth level and completely revamp that before you'd actually get pitching good enough to employ big league tactics at a teenage level yes i think that's accurate and we're not trying to mimic the level of competition at the youth level because obviously when i go to high school games or i'm skimming off the top i'm going to see the best prospects that is a huge difference from what a typical, you know, even a good high school baseball game might look like. Where, look, the emphasis should be, first of all, you're trying to, everybody should just have a good time, right? You really don't want anybody to get hurt. Beyond that, you should be, hey, just work on kids, like, hey, trying to throw more quality strikes, trying to, hey, just put the ball in play, right? We're not trying to build we're not trying to build big leaguers here. Most high school baseball players aren't even going to go play in college, but you just want it to be, say, a good experience. And so, you know, we don't want to have guys just throwing as hard as they possibly can at that level, which is where you get sort of down this three, you know, three steps down the road. You have, you know, writing a piece that says, don't swing the bat. I haven't, I haven't read his piece, but sure, he, he's probably right. Um, that's not good for baseball at all. I don't, I don't think anybody should be pulling for that. No, no, I don't think that's what anybody wants in the long run. And I think it's all going to come back to more hittable pitches, right? I threw out the ridiculous idea of walking on ball three. Still mad at you, by the way. Yeah, you're still upset about that. But I think the funny thing was when I looked at walk rates over the history of the game, walk rates don't change that much. A lot of other Mm -hmm. things we look at change a lot for various 
periods of baseball history, walk rates don't change nearly as much. And I think it's just because the pitcher has a lot of control in the situation. There's an acceptable level of walks that gets you up to the big leagues in the first place. You need a certain amount of command and control to be a big league pitcher. And then from a strategy perspective, you're not going to let guys nibble so much that you're walking five per nine as a team all season. It's just, it's not accepted. So I think that's a little bit of it, even though we are in this period where it seems like stuff has been placed ahead of command. Having filthy pitches, having velocity and spin and movement has become more important than locating consistently. Obviously, you want to do both, but if you can do the former, it's not as important if you do the latter as well as you should. And I think that is a big part of this problem as well. But definitely one of those things, swinging the bat being bad, not great for baseball and a big problem that the game, I think, will be working a lot to solve in the the months and in years ahead, especially. Let's get to some overreaction theater, though. And I think the best place to start for overreaction theater is in the Bronx. The Yankees are very good, which makes it seem like people aren't overreacting to the Yankees at all. Keith, I feel like when the Yankees get up to a slow start, the sky is falling. When the Yankees get off to a fast start, it's the, yeah, that's what they're supposed to do. Do it again and then do it again some more. They do have the best <laughs> offense in baseball right now, 122 WRC+. Plus. They're second in team ERA. I realize there are other pitching stats you can use. Just wanted a simple catch-all. So they're they're very good across the board right now. And as I think about this team, this is something the projections pointed to. Like they would be among the best hitting teams and best pitching teams in baseball. The problem I've had with the Yankees for a few years is that because they are an older roster with a lot of players that have had significant injury issues, there is a, to me, greater probability that they underperform their projections over a full season simply because the roster doesn't hold up. And I don't think that's always reflected in the numbers that the systems are, are spitting out over the course of an offseason. So while things are going very well for the Yankees right now, do you think there's still the consistent threats that have been kind of looming in the background over this core that are, are there, but people are kind of putting on the back burner for now because of how well things are going right now? Yeah, I think that's completely fair. You look at their rotation, right? It's Derek Cole's what he is, right? He's got an unbelievable history. Three guys who get hurt a lot, and Nestor Cortez, who I think it's what he's doing is real, but he's really kind of also never done it before. You know, we don't know what it looks like over the course of, say, a full season. So to me, there's plenty of reason to be concerned about the sustainability of what's happening. I think what's happening is real. I mean, this is a tremendous run prevention group. Uh, our friend Joe Sheehan just wrote about that the other day, actually. They are... As good, I mean, I think they're currently the best in baseball in that department, and I think it's it is the culmination of a lot of work on player from player development to pitch design to some smart acquisitions. Or in the case of Nestor Cortez, good acquisition who they gave away and then reacquired. <laughs> yeah, right. I think they've lost him twice. Actually, they gave him lost him in the Rule Five, got him back, traded him, got him back again, or lost a free something like that. Whatever they thought so highly of this guy, they let him go twice. Uh, but then he, they got him back, and it seems that that cutter is really well, whatever they call it, that new breaking pitch is is very real and creates something I think pretty sustainable for them. However, I don't know that there's a lot of margin for error there. If one of those guys go down, you know, Montgomery missed basically two years with Tommy John. He doesn't miss a ton of bats. Severino missed basically three years with injuries. He is also probably the worst starter in the rotation right now. Tyone, I think, is a two-Tommy John guy and has also had multiple other um, injuries. And so 
I'm not seeing a ton of sustainability there. So I think it'd be fair to worry about that. And at the same time would probably also say, you're also off to a great start. Like they go 500 the rest of the way, they make the playoffs. Yep. Which is ridiculous, but this is where we are Mm -hmm. as a sport. So that's, I think that, you know, if I'm a Yankee fan, I'm thinking about that in the back of my mind, but I'm not, like I said, I wouldn't actively be worried about it. Yeah, I guess the thing about the Yankees that has always been interesting to me the last couple of years, they've got these younger pitchers and they're seemingly healthy right now. And this group for me includes Luis Heal, Clark Schmidt, who's missed a lot of time with injuries, and Davey Garcia. And I look at those three guys, and I'm surprised. Like, Davey Garcia, something has just unraveled for him. Going back to last season, the walk rate is just off the charts. I I don't know. if Is he just broken? No, they changed his arm slot. They dropped his arm slot last. Somebody did. Um, It's the worst idea ever. He was what he was, and you had to just accept this is what it is. It's going to be a little wild. It's not super pretty. He was probably going to break anyway. But what he did was very real. It was multiple pitches. Um, it was a fastball that just pl- constantly played above its velocity and frankly above its spin rate, which is kind of a funny thing to say, but it really did. You know, this, it was, I don't know what the idea was. They lowered his slot and it wrecked everything and he has not been the same guy since. And I just, I, I've given up on him. It's just, I'm sorry. And I say there's somebody who ranked DB in the top 100 at one point. It's just, it ain't coming back. I think we've seen a longer track record of Luis Heal having some control issues, so it's it's not as surprising that he's going through some of the problems he's going through right now at AAA, but I would expect one of those guys to at least be a useful multi-inning glue guy if needed. And then there's Schmidt, who I, I always forget, he's 26 years old because of lost time. He was a first-rounder, drafted out of college. Yeah, he had. for people who don't remember, he had Tommy John. He was one of the more direct uh, egregious uses of uh, pitcher misuse cases I can think of. He went out with, I think like a hamstring injury, missed a couple weeks, comes back and they treat him like he was never gone. Just throw him right back in hundred pitches ish. Start, 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 bang, elbow goes. He always had a rough delivery. I wasn't shocked. Yankees take him after the Tommy John, which is really relevant because I assume at some point we'll have a little draft talk today. Mm -hmm. And we got a lot of Tommy John guys in this year's draft. The Yankees took him 16th overall coming off the Tommy John Worked with him while he was rehabbing just to kind of clean up the delivery a little bit, maybe to reduce the chances of a recurrence. And for about a year or so, it looked great. Looked like it it was – they had nailed it across the board. And unfortunately, the guy's just not stayed healthy since then. And it hasn't been like a recurrence. He's just – like I say, he's just not stayed healthy. Yeah, definitely a frustrating situation. But one where I I think if you look at his usage – this season, he was basically the extra pitcher they were holding in April, or yes. one of the extra pitchers. Only appeared in four games through eight and the third innings. I realize with the track record there, you want to be aware of how you use this guy. You don't want to push him too hard. But when you're talking about a 26-year-old, I guess it's also kind of a question of what long-term future are you really worrying about? I'm not saying run him into the ground. I, I'm not at all defending what happened to him in college. That's totally what you're saying. Why do you hate pitchers, Derek? Why are you trying to get them all hurt? Because I'm jealous. I want a chance to pitch. That's my goal. But how do you manage a guy like this? How do you take a 26-year-old with this kind of injury workload, injury history, and and give him a workload that makes your team better? Like I'm I'm surprised. I know they've got great bullpen depth, but I'm surprised there's not a spot on the roster for him, given these circumstances at this point, because I don't think they're stretching him out at AAA. I mean, I I don't think they're going to try and use him as a replacement starter if someone goes down. 
I wonder if the issue is that he should they should be trying to start him. I wonder if one of the issues is that they feel like he can't work on a typical reliever's workload. I don't know. And I'm just speculating, but he's had a lot of little arm things. And I wonder if some of this is this guy just can't hold, he can't pitch on back-to-back days, which, you know, he wouldn't be alone in that. There used to be a time that that was just like, well, we, there's nothing we can do for you now if you can't pitch on back-to-back days. But now I think we're more at a point where where it's we're willing to work with guys like that However, there's only so many. There are only so many spots on a roster for a pitcher who has that kind of limitation. And I wonder, just looking at how they used him, he's pitching a good four days rest, five days rest, four days rest, five days rest as a reliever. That's tough. That's tough for a manager. If that's a real limitation, I'm not just reading something into it that's not there. That's a lot. I think it was probably just more of situations that they were just using him as more of a mop up guy. And as Mm -hmm. a result, it was a little less work uh, as a result. The guy that's pitched really well and stayed on the big league roster is Michael King. He's got 25 to three strikeout to walk ratio entering play on Thursday. ERA 0.51 whip 0.74. He has been fantastic for them so far. And this does go back to something the Yankees have done well for a while. Player development and pitch design does seem like a a skill they have as an organization where they can get pretty good mileage out of guys like King. You mentioned Nestor Cortez before, and these players are extremely valuable. These kind of multi-inning tweeners, even if they're not getting regular run in the rotation. I know in the last two seasons, we've seen maybe 10 spot starts from Michael King. All eight of his appearances so far have been in relief, but I've reached the point now of seeing that he's going three innings in some of these appearances, Keith. I think if someone does go down with a lengthy injury in the rotation, they might try to stretch him out and make him a five-inning guy again. He might be ahead of some of those younger options. Yeah, I don't think he's a twice through the order, three times through the order, especially kind of guy. To me, he is a, this is exactly what he should be. It's a big deception thing. And the more the hitters with his, a lot of his success, the more the hitters see him, I think the... Uh, the worst that is for him. I think they've got him in the perfect role. Multi-inning reliever is exactly where he needs to be. He can be pretty valuable. He can be a three-war guy in a role like that. Maybe more if he's sort. You know, he's got it's. He's averaging just over two innings in appearance. If he obviously if that means if he makes fifty appearances, you can check my math on this. That would be a hundred innings. That would be he could be pretty valuable in a role like that. Yeah, thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad I can still do. I still. I was some calculus involved. It's very scary math. I'll. I'll just leave that to the listeners to work out on their own. Yeah, confirmed on the uh, 50 times 2 is 100. Good to verify these facts. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. 
See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Sky's not falling in the Bronx because things are going really well. Sky is falling in Boston a little bit because the Red Sox are off to a disappointing start relative to expectations. No, they are not the Reds. They are far from it. No one's the Reds. Only the Reds are the Reds. But I want to bring up Garrett Whitlock. I know you get to talk with Eric Caravel about him on your own podcast on Monday. Mm-hmm. A great start from Whitlock this week. He has been one of the biggest surprises for me of the season because I I didn't think he'd stretch out and be used like a full starter. I thought they would use him a lot like they did last year, a lot like the way the Yankees used Michael King. I thought that was probably the ceiling. But from a pure scouting perspective, is there a chance this work it works out if we're putting the starters workload, you know, maybe fatigue later in the season. We, t- we put those concerns aside. Is the pitch mix with this command good enough for Garrett Whitlock to stick in this rotation and be at least an average starter, if not a, a above average starter? Yeah, I, I was a skeptic on this coming into the season on the possibility of ta- well, for two reasons. One, I wasn't sure he could just do it at all. But then also on top of that, it was sort of like, you, you got a pretty good thing going here, right? Like, why mess with this? This 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 is working, and so yeah, there was a little part of me that was like, eh, you know, it's not like this was a guy who was obviously miscast. Right, this is an 18th round draft pick who'd been a reliever for a while. It seemed like that was probably his best role anyway. So why would you try to make a starter? We've certainly seen examples of teams trying to make starters out of relievers who you know, didn't have the stuff or didn't have the stamina or whatever. And then you just, you end up with kind of nothing, actually. I think of Daniel Bard and the Red Sox do that, I don't know, a lifetime ago. My other concern was last year, he did show pretty sizable platoon split out of the bullpen. And his changeup is his worst pitch. And by the way, this year has still been his least effective pitch. He hasn't shown the platoon split so far in a pretty, obviously, a pretty tiny sample on the season. I'd really like to see does this continue? Like, put it this way. If we get to, you know, July and the platoon split hasn't budged, he is still effective against left-handed batters despite now facing them multiple times. I will say, I think I was wrong on this guy. However, I feel like that third pitch question, I don't think that's resolved. Certainly not based on, again, a pretty small sample of things. Even if you can find a way for the first half of the season to get through starts every fifth day and maybe – work with like a low threes ERA, that's great. I mean, they need that with uh, with Chris Sale down. They need Garrett Whitlock to to fill that void. And he's done it so far. Nine Ks last time out. Is he vaccinated? I think he might be vaccinated. So he can pitch in Toronto as opposed to Ding Dong Tanner Houck. Yeah. He's such a, such a good team guy that he won't get a completely safe and effective vaccine so that he can pitch against one of the division rivals. I don't know. Before this last start against the Angels at Toronto was Garrett Whitlock's last appearance. He's had some tough matchups overall. I know a lot of it's been out of the bullpen too, yeah. but Angels, Jays twice, Rays, Twins, Yankees. The only soft matchup he had come out of the bullpen was against the Tigers back on April 12th. Four scoreless, yep. couple Ks there. So if you're factoring in who he's facing, it's also been a tough road. Yeah. Can I also put, just want to also point out here, Hauk 
he had that same question. Does he have a way to get lefties out? And they were working with him on a splitter last year. He's also a good example of how misleading splits can be in a pretty small uh, small sample. So far this year, he's actually been way more effective against lefties. However, and I'm just talking, talking triple slash line, 120 batting average, no extra base hits. Lefties are three for 25 against him. He's actually walked more lefties than he struck out. And it's a 167 Babbitt allowed. That's probably not going to last. Those are going to switch. By the time we get later in the season, Hauk's going to be what he was. He's going to be better against right-handers unless we see more improvement in that additional pitch. And to me, that's just more of a reason to look at Whitlock and say, so far, so good. We can roll with this, but keep in the back of your mind, there is some underlying evidence that says this probably isn't going to last. If you look at the team leaderboard, for WRC+, Plus, you look at the bottom, look at teams that have struggled to score so far. The Red Sox are tied for 27th in Team WRC+, Plus at 82. So they're 18% worse than a league average offense right now. Didn't see that coming. Did not see that coming at all. I mean, if you said they underperformed early, I'd say if they were scoring runs, they probably just weren't keeping runs off the board. Trevor Story's been off to a slow start. You know, Alex Verdugo just isn't doing a lot of damage right now. And Christian Vasquez has been real quiet. And Bobby Dahlbeck has reverted to... His pre his pre August numbers, right? Like he he showed late last season, he got the K rate down, but it hasn't stuck. He's back to longer history, Bobby Dahlbeck so far, and it probably gets people wondering: Is Tristan Cassis going to get a shot to take over that job at first base? It'd be better than Bobby Dahlbeck. Bobby Dahlbeck is not a major league regular and never has been. Like this, I don't get it. I mean, I remember some. Red Sox fan trying to claim that I was wrong about Dahlbeck. Uh, this was in a, I did a Q&A with Jen McCaffrey for us and cited his splits from August 17th on because that's a that's a thing, right? How you hit from August 17th through the end of the season. It's a well-known uh, uh, split to look at. He is who we thought he was. He is never going to cut the strikeouts enough to be a major league regular and certainly not at first base. And if you're a contending club, you need a lot more than that out of first base. And I just feel like they probably didn't go invest in a better bat to take that spot because they knew Cassis was coming. Fine. I'm completely fine with that. However, Dahlbeck is killing them, right? He's the worst hitter in the lineup. He's the worst guy to get any kind of regular at-bats. He's actually the worst guy to get more than 30 plate appearances for the team all year. And this is just so consistent with who he's been, basically, his whole career. Yeah. I mean, I think with Cassis, you're looking at AAA numbers right now that are very good. An extension of what he did last year. He was 30% better than league average in the brief time that he was there at the end of last season. He's maintained a similar amount of power to this point. Six homers now through 33 games this season and last. It's just a question of how long do you need to see it at that level before you feel like he's better? I think because Dahlbeck has struggled so much, you'd almost just want to take the gamble now. Even if you were kind of coin flip sort of, oh, he's may- maybe he's ready, maybe he's not. Find out prove that he's not the answer because if he's not the answer right now then you know you have to go find someone else at the deadline yeah i would not you know as a general player development rule i would not advocate bringing him up after what is it a month in triple a and how much time was he actually in double last year he only played 86 games in total so he's got about 110 games post-pandemic which also amounts to all of his time above A-ball, not even a full season's worth of games. So maybe not ideal for player development. Okay with doing certain things like that when you are in a, when you're trying to contend. Mm -hmm. And they are, obviously. So to me, there is, I would, even though in general, I would not push to bring a guy up sooner. 
Cassis isn't going to be worse than Dahlbeck. I, I feel reasonably confident in that. And he may not be great right away. I can completely understand if he's not. But I could see him being, you know, if he's close to league average, he's a huge improvement over Dahlbeck. If they are still looking at being, if they're in, still intend to be contenders this year. I, that's, I think that's clearly the move. Otherwise, they need to go find somebody else. Yeah, and it's usually one of those spots. It's relatively easy in season to go get a first baseman if you need one. You can find someone who's at least passable there defensively that provides some cheap power that doesn't hurt you. I think that's the the minimum of the position, especially for a team with you know playoff aspirations, as the Red Sox certainly have. Let's talk about Joe Adele for a bit, shifting the focus just a little while. We, we moved Joe Adele back to AAA, and, and now I'm wondering... What's next for him? Is he going to be a part of the Angels' long-term plans? I know a lot of people have been frustrated by his defense. You've talked about it before. It was something that was never really an issue when he was younger, so it's strange that it's become a problem now. I think the question is really, are you willing to trade him? You know, If, if you are in charge in Anaheim, is Joe Adele a player that you are willing to trade to bolster your rotation or to possibly get an upgrade for your middle infield. I mean, what is the, what's your interest level in, in trading for him if you're running a different team? And what's your willingness to part with him if you're calling the shots for the Angels? Yeah, I mean, he's 23. He is way too young for anyone to give up on him. And I think he was completely mishandled as a prospect. Like his player development, that, that's a, and, and I'm not blaming player development specifically. There was just this pressure to win. They rushed him to the majors. You know, he was so good that year in double A, especially. And they ran him up to the big leagues and then decided to, sorry, ran him up to triple A at the end of that season. And he started to show a lot, like it was starting to crack basically. All right, here we got to slow down. He was only 20 when he first got to triple A. There was just no reason at all to push him beyond that. He started striking out a ton. The power disappeared, despite the fact that he was playing in Salt Lake at the time, which is an incredible hitter's park. They brought him up to the majors in the pandemic year. He was wildly overmatched. No surprise there. And I think it's just completely set him back. Like he has not gotten a chance to reset. They had him in AAA a little bit last year. He did not hit that well considering the environment he had for power. Everything else was a kind of a negative indicator on him. In the big leagues again, struggled again. In the big leagues again this year, 19 games. I know it's a small sample. It's 24 strikeouts and one walk. I don't have a lot good to say about that. And now what do you do? Let him go back to AAA and let him hit a bunch of home runs in an environment that's probably not a challenge for him anymore and is a great place to hit. Yeah, you could send him down and say, hey, you're not coming up until you meet some of these other measurable goals in terms of you know pitch recognition or plate discipline, while strike recognition, whatever you want to. There's a lot, certainly things you can do. However, and I don't know the kid, it may be a situation where you look and say, this isn't working out here. You're selling very low mm-hmm. on him, though. And I think a lot of – there's 10 teams that easily that would say, yeah, we'll take Joe Adele, we'll put him in the big leagues, and we don't care if he struggles the rest of the year. A, we think we might be able to help him, and B, the mere fact of a change of scenery might help him. I just don't know that you're going to get a lot for him. I think a lot of people are also going to look and say – like if you're even a moderate contender – you're probably not that interested. If you're, you're also not going to be inclined to give up someone who's more of an established player, you know, more of a sure thing for somebody where, hey, you could get a down, he could be nothing. He may never pan out at this point. And it's weird because I remember going into his draft year, I was not eye on him because people said there was a ton of swing and miss, and then he went on an absolute tear at the end of his high school season. 
which is kind of how he ended up the 10th pick in the draft. And honestly, two years after that, I was like, well, I was wrong. This guy looks like a superstar. Completely reversed course. It's like, yep, I'll wear it. I got a lot of them wrong in the draft and thought he was a better hitter. And everyone was coming back saying he looked, I mean, this guy looked all world um, from athleticism, tools, performance, he checked every box. And the thing I keep coming back to is the too quick promotion to triple and the even quick, too quicker promotion to the majors <laughs> after that. And it's just, it, the train went completely off the tracks there. And I don't know that it's getting back on for the Angels. And that's, again, I just want to emphasize, like, I know he's 23. I know he can turn it around. And I'm not saying the Angels have to trade him. I think that's what, that's an overreaction. But you can also acknowledge that we like the kid. It's just not happening here. Yeah, I think it's it's definitely the case where they could just wait and see what happens in the next couple of months and bring him back up. And, and maybe Taylor Ward cools off and Adele ends up playing more. There's a bunch of ways it could still work out for him there. But I think if they want to make a deep run in October, they're probably going to need some upgrades. They don't have a loaded system, but maybe they've got enough there to make moves without dealing him. I just think as a guy who's someone who has nothing left to prove at AAA, it doesn't serve him long term to just be stuck there. And it might not help the Angels unlock anything. I think the PCL is a place where you can develop some bad habits as a hitter. You can fall in love with that home run happy approach and selling out for the power because it's easy to get to that power, relatively speaking, in those environments. I threw it out there on Twitter because it's always the best way to conduct any sort of research at all. Angels, A's, hooking up on a trade, Joe Adele for Frankie Montas, and yeah, maybe you add some balance on on one side, but just from like a, a principle standpoint, it seems like a trade that helps both sides if you can find a way to, to make the pieces fit. And I wondered, there's always been this false narrative that teams won't trade in division. Oh, yeah, it's just not a thing. The best offer you can get is a team in your division. Who cares? Make your team better. The guy you trade away isn't going to ruin your life for the next 15 years. It's just not going to work that way. Um, so I, I, a more balanced schedule should completely erase that that narrative anyway. Like You're, you're not going to see these teams as much in the future as you have historically. Uh, but just as a concept, Montas for Adele. I mean, do you think that's the kind of deal that the Angels should at least be thinking about if they are focused on trying to win right now? Yes. And I say that as somebody who has a bit of a Montas skeptic, kind of always have been. He's been hurt a lot. I don't think he's ever really going to have particularly good command. I think he's benefited a ton from pitching in Oakland, which is a tremendous hitter, uh, pitcher's park. Angel Stadium is a pretty good place for pitchers too, so maybe not the worst environment. Also, good at 100% CBAs. Taking Adele, I mean, they took Christian Pache, kind of had similar problems, at least offers defensive value. They've had Pache in the majors all year, and he's not, so far, not shown much sign of getting better. Uh, Pache, I think, is Adele's age or maybe even a year younger, so also not giving up on him. But that, you know what? That's what the A's are going to do. They're just going to take guys like this and say, we're not sending you a triple A. You're just going to play in the majors, and if you fail this year, you fail. We don't care. We're, gonna, we're thinking long term. I mean, I have spoken to someone there about Pache, and they're like, Look, he got to the majors really, really young. A lot of those guys end up figuring it out. It just takes more time. And, you know, I think the implication there was time is something the A's have that a lot of other clubs don't. If you are in the A's front office right now, you're in a pretty lousy situation from ownership to the stadium and the, all of which just adds up to you don't have a lot of money to work with. But one thing you have is playing time. You have a lot of playing time to hand out and you can do and you can think about that. In a, uh, with a longer time horizon than just about any front office in baseball. And you can say, we're giving Christian Pache a thousand at-bats the next two years. And we're going to work with him. Obviously, we're not just going to wait and see if he gets better. But if at the end of those thousand at-bats, he hasn't made improvements, we could reevaluate. 
but we can give him those thousand at bats and almost nobody else can. They could say basically the same thing with Joe Adele. I, I suppose there's some limit. You don't want nine guys like that in your lineup, but you could have three. Yeah. Why not do it with high ceiling players? I mean, with Pache, you're getting great defense oh, from hell the yes. beginning. And I, I think with Pache, it's working out better than you'd think looking at the slash line. The slash line's bad. 177, 198, 291. It's awful. Even in this environment, mm-hmm. bad. 45 WRC plus. It's a problem. The underlying stat cast numbers, though, are really encouraging. He's got an 8.2% barrel rate. That's up from his previous opportunities. Similar amount of time in the big leagues with Atlanta. Hard hit rates at 47.5%. Pache is at least hitting the ball hard when he hits it, and yeah. he's striking out less than he has in the past. Those are the indicators I'd be looking at and saying, you know what? Results aren't that important to us right now. We're looking at the underlying numbers, and the underlying numbers are at least moving in the right direction. I think you mm-hmm. could see something similar by not having Joe Adele in a situation where it's up and down, up and down. I, I think they should take advantage of this opportunity with players like this and trades like this when they move Montas, when they move anybody else that contending teams are interested in. The up and down also isn't helping anybody. Like, there's no evidence that – like the Rays just sent Josh Lowe down based on a pretty small sample. But I, it, this is also an organization. I think we all, we all trust them. We trust their decision making. I don't think Josh Lowe is going to be back in a week nope. unless – like, I suppose unless there's some desperate need. Guess what? It's the Rays. They have eight other players they could also call up. Josh Lowe will stay down until he fixes whatever the thing is that they've identified that he needs to fix in the short term to come back up and be successful in the majors. Hasn't changed my opinion of Josh Lowe one bit, but I do feel like if you're saying, if we have two Josh Lowe's, right? One here and one, say, in the Angels system, where there's been some questionable decision-making around player promotions that's not just limited to the current front office, and also you know, greater pressure to win, which Josh Lowe do I want? I take the one with the race. I feel like he'll be handled better. He'll be given more time at the appropriate level, whether that's AAA or the majors, to work on what he needs to work on. And I'm saying that in, in kind of ambiguous terms because, you know, I, I wrote a little bit about Lowe a week ago. I don't know exactly what it is the race saw that made them say he's better and better off in AAA. I just believe that they had a good reason. I think their reason, this is from 3,000 miles away. I think they felt good enough about the platoon combination of Brett Phillips and Harold Ramirez, two players without minor league options, that they said, well, Josh Lowe's got options. He's not playing quite well enough right now. We're a contending team. We're getting a little more out of these guys without options. Let's option Josh Lowe down for now and figure it out later. And maybe we can sneak one of Phillips or Ramirez through waivers and get them down to AAA later. But I think at that at that roster pare down period at the end of this past week, Every team in the league was marking that on their calendar saying, hey, players are going to come available. If we're missing something, someone's going to have to make decisions on two players on every roster, and we might be able to get upgrades if any of those players have to pass through waivers. And I think if you have a player you like that you want to keep, you're going to try and wait until spots are are a little harder to come by when it's a little more difficult for an opposing team to come in and claim your player that you're trying to pass through waivers. Yep, that's I agree. Yeah, and I mean, teams have always looked at that. We've had years before where there was a roster cutdown date, and obviously, we know there are right certain points in the spring training calendar, the off season calendar. Teams know when players tend to become available, mm-hmm. also, and teams, the teams that have open twenty five or forty man roster spots, they plan around that stuff. Yeah, so I, I think the problem here is that this style of management, which I, I don't think you and I would argue against it as a bad tactic, but it's smart to hoard as much talent as you possibly can. It's not necessarily the best thing for the development of Josh Lowe for reasons we've talked about before. Going back to a level you've already solved isn't going to fix your problem against better competition. 
but it's also bad from a product standpoint because you're taking one of the better players they could be playing and he's not even on the roster because of the way the roster rules work. That seems like a flaw that also needs to be addressed. I don't know how you fix it, though. No, I don't know how you fix it either, right? I don't think... I mean, we're in... I'm hoping a lot of this roster, these roster shenanigans are done. You know, we're not post-pandemic. The pandemic is with us forever, but the pandemic is no longer actively truncating the Major League Baseball schedule. And we're not going to be in a CBA negotiation for a while. So I'm hoping that the 2023 baseball calendar across the board looks like the 2019 baseball calendar and we get rid of some of this stuff because I don't, you know, for a lot of reasons. I mean, I think, I mean, this goes back to Eno's piece, right? There's just too much, too many pitchers. Also, you can just bring in a fresh reliever throwing 95 with high spin every inning if you want to. So that's also hurting the, quality of the not quality in terms of competition but the aesthetic quality of the game being played on the field yeah, another area the roster rules will i think continually be tweaked as they try and find ways to get guys to swing more to get more balls in play to force more action it's only a kick a jump a block it's only a serve it's only a tackle a run It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperrice.com. Um, let's talk about your big board. Your first top 100 prospects for the 2022 draft actually dropped earlier in the day on Thursday. We're recording late afternoon on Thursday. We talked about some of the players at the very top last week. I know we get to talk about Drew Jones and Cam Collier and Tamara Johnson. Uh, Now that it's all out there, Keith, uh, I wanted to get into a few more players near the top of the board. Um, Elijah Green's a name that I've actually heard for a while. I think he's Mm -hmm. been on the the radar for for prospect junkies for longer than a lot of high school kids tend to be. Uh, So he's inside the top five, along with Brooks Lee, who you have as the best hitter in the college class this year, both statistically and just based on on scouting reports, too. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious if if you could see either one of those guys cracking the big three that we discussed last weekend. Is it within range? Is it reasonable for them to possibly move up to one of those top three spots? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I, I wrote a little bit about this at the beginning. Like Drew Jones, Andrew Jones' son, he's, he's one. And he's clearly one. Now, he's not light years ahead of everybody else. This isn't Steven Strasburg. But he's clearly the best guy. I, everybody I talk to seems to think he's the best guy. I should qualify that. I've talked to a minority of scouts who think he might be second. However, because he is not light years ahead of anybody else, I think if you're the Orioles picking first, you might be able to reasonably argue that you can take one of these other players, sign them for a bonus below the slot recommendation and one, and then the Orioles have two extra picks in addition to second, third, fourth, fifth round. They have one in the first sandwich round, one in the second sandwich round. They have extra picks. They could really clean up. They could do what Pittsburgh did last year and get three first rounders 
uh, three first-round talents, despite having only one actual first-round pick. I don't think it's going to be the two guys you mentioned. I cannot imagine the Orioles taking Elijah Green, who has huge upside. He may have the most pure upside of anyone in the in the draft class, or at least of anyone towards the top of the draft class. There's a lot of downside risk. He swung and missed a good bit this spring. Um, he swung and missed a, a little bit more than some of these other prospects last summer. And so, and obviously we have a good amount of data and a lot of video on these guys. So we know that. And that's probably going to work against him potentially going 1-1, especially Mike Elias' history as a, as a scouting director and as a GM, especially more recently, has been one of general risk aversion at the top. He will take more risk. The risk tolerance grows as we go later in the draft. That's a pretty rational evidence-based philosophy. Even if I might veer from that a little bit, if I were in his shoes, I also look at his drafts and I understand. And so I could, could not see him taking Elijah Green. I've heard that they're not on Brooksley at one, and I'm not sure why, because they must have something about him that they particularly dislike, because he would seem to fit. The guy never, like, he's, he's one of the best pure hit, has one of the best pure hit tools in the draft class. He rarely punches out. He does hit the ball pretty hard, and he's an infield with great hands. I do not believe he's a shortstop. I've talked to, I think, one scout who really thinks he's a shortstop, and everyone else is like, no way. That guy's got cankles. He can't stay at shortstop, oh, etc." No. I'm like, it, whatever. He doesn't move like a shortstop. You know, to me, it reminded me a little bit of Aaron Hill, who was a better runner. We drafted him while I was in Toronto. And at first, it was like, why can't Aaron Hill learn to play shortstop? He's this incredible athlete. He's super, super smart, and, and he's fast. And then we got him in pro ball and his footwork was just never going to translate to short. And we moved him over to second. He was great immediately. I could totally see Brooks Lee doing that. And Brooks Lee has incredible hands. He fits. Now, for whatever reason, the Orioles apparently aren't that into him. Or maybe they just camouflaged interest. I don't know. He would seem like the guy who could really go up it and, and then going, you know, pick one. You, your question was actually, could any of those guys go in the top three? Hell yeah. Someone's going to go in the top three who's... Probably not my top five. I mean, when the Orioles picked second in the pandemic draft, they took Harrison Kierstad, who I had like 13th in the draft class, because he he actually struck out a lot. He was in the SEC. He had great exit velocity uh, numbers. So the Orioles, I think, were betting a bit on the batted ball data, but they also cut a deal with him so that they could go over slot for Colby Mayo, who looks pretty good so far, and Carter Baumler, who ended up having Tommy John surgery. So jury's still out on that. I could see them following a similar, philo- similar philosophy, I'm not sure who that player might be if they aren't going to take Jones first. Looking at the top 20, top 25 or so of your list, and I realize this is the first published version of the list, but this is the kind of project that you've been working on for a while. You've been working on these evaluations for a while. Uh, Who are some of the biggest risers? Who are some of the guys that have jumped up quite a bit compared to previous expectations of where they might fall on something like this? That's a really good question. So I mentioned Peyton Graham, who probably, if, if I'd done this a month ago, he wouldn't have made my top 100. Um, he was not off to a good start. He was really struggling to make quality contact, and he made some swing adjustments, some real mechanical adjustments. Um, I, each one of them, it was kind of small. I was going back last night or the night before going through some video, and I don't think any of them was individually that large, but I think they added up to, okay, now the mechanics and the batted ball results are matching the kind of expectations for the player he was going to be. Would not I don't have him in the first round. It wouldn't shock me if he ended up there. If we get to the end of the first and teams start saying, I don't like any of what's happening here, 
I want a college. Well, actually, what a lot of them would be like, take a college. I could just picture a GM walking into the room. I'm friends with some GMs, but I'm going to pick on you all right now. GM who hasn't really followed the draft walking into the room be like, take a college pitcher. And the scouting director's like, they're all hurt. <laughs> I can't. Who? What? Look at the board. And the GM finally says, fine, take a college hitter. Because they don't want to play with the high school pitching at that end of the draft. And of course, a lot of those, you get to the late first round. It's a little bit, I'm overgeneralizing here, but hopefully the point comes across. You get to the end of the first round, right? You've got a lot of high school players who are really, really talented and maybe should have gone a little bit higher or maybe just think they should have gone a little bit higher. Maybe they know they're going to a power five school and have a pretty good chance in two to three years when they're draft eligible again to end up a top 10 pick. And so they might say, I'm going to bet on myself and I'm going to do that. So if you're a GM at the end of the first round or scouting director, you get to the end of the first round and say, I'm not going over slot for one of those kids where there's, you know, especially a high school pitcher where there's just so much risk involved. We're going to be a little risk averse there. Even if we save a little bit of money, we'll, let's go take the risk in the second round. There'll be plenty of good high school players to still take in the second round and maybe pay over slot. And that's true. That is a philosophy I would very much endorse myself if I were in a draft room. I don't want to go overly conservative, but saying, hey, we pick 25 and we're going to take a college hitter we really love at that spot. Try to save you know two to $400,000 there. And when we come back around, go over slot for the best high school player still left on our board. It's a pretty good way to, I think, get good value and a little ceiling out of a draft where you don't have extra picks and your first pick is late in the first round. You mentioned the pitching injuries, and I'm wondering if that is another symptom of baseball largely getting canceled at the amateur levels in 2020. Yes. The jarring lack of season and and the impact of of trying to ramp back up in 2021 and i just i wonder if we're going to be feeling that you know beyond this draft class still where kids yeah. that have been in high school especially or young college pitchers just never quite get right or they get hurt trying to get right as a result of that lost time yes i i believe that and folks who look at the list too i i ended up just kind of clumping a bunch of them together because it's very really hard to separate a lot of them now or We've got Kumar Rocker, who obviously didn't sign last year, but he hasn't pitched this year. Carson Wisenhunt, who's been suspended this entire year by the NCAA for a positive test for a PED. Uh, well, we expect those guys will pitch at some point in June, maybe in an independent league. I will try to go see them if possible. They're going to move on the rankings once they actually get out there. But then right after those guys, I have a bunch of the Tommy John guys, because who the heck knows? Other than Connor Prelip, who will be able to throw for scouts before the draft, we're not going to see any of those guys again. Um, particularly the college guys. So it's very, you know, we're definitely in a wait and see mode with those guys. But I think that the most parsimonious explanation for all of the Tommy Johns we're having for high-end pitching prospects this particular draft year is that we're paying the price now for 2020, right? For guys just not being able to pitch at all and too many guys coming back and pitching too much last year. That's not true for every single one of these guys. Like Reggie Crawford barely pitched last year. He's a converted position player who's suddenly up to 99 and athletic as hell. He barely pitched at all. But some of these other guys, I think it was just sort of 2021. We're going to just, it's a regular year, right? We're good to go. And whatever the usage was, I'm not even saying it was overuse necessarily, but it was so much more than it was in 2020 where guys just simply weren't able to pitch at all that Maybe going from essentially zero to even 80 to 90% was too much. I mean, I'm not even accusing 
No, I'm not making no, an accusation no. of any sort of malpractice. I think it was just we didn't have a chance to pitch in 2020. We're going to try and go back to what we were doing before. Hopefully it's okay. How do you feel? Arm feels good. Keep throwing. Shoulder feels good. Keep throwing. And then something's wrong. It's just that's just the way that it is. Uh, one more riser from you, though, as uh, as we go. Yeah, you know, I really should mention Jackson Holiday, especially because he's a name people will remember. That's Matt's kid. Um, and Matt's got another one coming in two years. I think Ethan, who people is like, he's even better than Jackson, which may be true. We also do that a lot. You like this brother. Wait till you see the next one. I'm like, he's in diapers. What are you talking about? How do we even know? Can we just, can I survive this year's draft? But Jackson Holiday went from, I think if he came into the spring, he was like, he might be a first rounder to early in the spring. He was like, he might be a mid first rounder. And then he and his team from Stillwater, Oklahoma, um, this is some like college there or something. They went to Arizona for spring break. And I got to tell you, teams that do that, high schools that do that, obviously there's money involved. I, I recognize there's there's a privilege angle. But boy, does that help the prospects because GMs show up, VPs show up. Everyone's in town for spring training. So it's like, oh, hey, which high schools are coming through? Jackson Holiday's coming through. Let's all go over and watch Jackson Holiday. We'd rather watch that than watch our you know, bunch of you know, 4A guys in our Major League Baseball game. They never say that out loud. They say it privately. I kind of agree with it. Totally get it. Holiday put on a show. Eric Loggenhain from Fangraphs actually went. And uh, when I visited, when I went to Arizona after that for spring training, um, Eric and I were sitting there. He was showing me his video of Holiday's BP. And I just, you know, Derek can see my eyes getting big. Like this. Ooh, ooh, that's pretty swing. We like that. And then apparently he just, like, it, that's what it was all week. It was just good swing after good swing and good at-bats and hard hit balls. And people even now think he's got a chance to stay at shortstop. Just, you know, some of it is that, the, and he's sixth on my draft board, by the way. Some of it is that we got more information, you know, the, the and Actually, I would say most of it is we, we got more information because we start bearing down on guys. So much of this stuff, like who's the best guy for next year's draft? I have no idea. I, mean, I can throw you a name, but you know, two years ago, people were saying Elijah Green's going to be the top pick in the 2022 draft. There's basically zero chance he's going to be the top pick. He is a top prospect. That one worked out. But I remember when Brady Singer was a freshman at Florida, he's going to be the 1-1 guy in two years. No, he's just the guy you've heard of. That's not the same thing. Some of those guys turn out to be really good prospects. I think that was true for Bobby Witt Jr. He turned out to be a really good prospect who was worthy of the number two pick. And he was a guy we'd heard of well in advance of that draft. But a lot of times those guys don't work out at all. In Holiday's case, he was kind of just a little less scouted. And I think he changed also. I think he got better. And once teams, once scouts started bearing down, seeing the country, seeing Holiday more specifically – and comparing him to everyone else was, okay, this kid got better. The draft class also got worse. You start lining him up against everybody else, and he's pretty clearly a top 10 talent. I would not, I have him sixth. Would not be surprised at all to see him go somewhere before that. I think he checks a lot of the boxes that the teams above him are looking for. We just watched Matt Holiday not that long ago. I feel no. like Luke Collier, there's a little more of a break since his yeah. career ended. The youngest dad of a guy, of a so former major leaguer who's a dad with a kid on this list is Carl Crawford. Carl Crawford's kid is Justin Crawford from Vegas, who's a, who's probably a first rounder and can really run and looks like he might actually have a little bit more power than dad did. Carl Crawford is 40. He's only 40. Yeah. He's only 40. Most of these dads are younger than I am, actually. So somebody's older. There's somebody here like CeCe Sabathia's got a kid in the draft. Dewan Brazelton. Remember that one? Yeah. Third overall pick. Bad third overall pick. But a third overall pick. His kid is, is draft eligible. I think both Sabathia and Braslitz and the youngers are going to college. 
But still, like, that's a lot of, that's a lot of former big leaguers with kids on the list. And most of those former big leaguers are actually younger than I am. Yeah. They, they were playing not that long ago for not the most part. Ago. So it makes, yep. makes me feel old. Finally, finally starting to feel old with prospects who are sons of former big leaguers that I mm-hmm. just watched, it talked about, worse. wrote about. Oh, it's all, it's all downhill from here. We need to go, but I should say, before we go, check out The Athletic for a dollar a month for the first six months. You can read the entire top 100 big board that Keith has up right now. Theathletic.com slash baseball show gets you that special offer. I mean, a dollar a month for six months, like that's basically free. So you should jump on that while you still can. On Twitter, Keith is at Keith Law. I am at Derek Van Riper. The Athletic Baseball Show is back on Monday. Have a great weekend. Hey, baseball fans, this is Derek Van Riper. Now that spring training games are underway, opening day is just a few weeks away. Eno Saris and I have been getting ready for the season all winter on Rates and Barrels. Whether you're a seasoned fantasy player, a baseball stats junkie, or just someone who wants to learn more about the game, join us for four episodes each week this season, including our new Friday live stream with former big leaguer Trevor May. Check out the live stream on Fridays at 1 o'clock Eastern on the Rates and Barrels YouTube channel, or listen to the show wherever you enjoy your podcasts, including the ad-free option on the Athletic app.